Welcome to another episode of the Documentary Photography Review Podcast with me, Chris King, and co-presenter Rebecca Enderby. In this episode, we speak to Tim Mitchell, a London-based documentary photographer who has worked on projects both locally and globally. Tim shares with us the challenges and positive aspects of developing as a self-taught photographer and working in collaboration with academics, how it can add depth to both the academic and photographic body of work. We focus on Tim's most recent body of work, A Fish Out of Water, which explores the recycling of ships in the UK and was carried out in collaboration with social scientists. We spoke a great deal about many things, but one thing we didn't get around to chatting about was the colour photo newspaper that Tim self-published to coincide with his debut solo exhibition of the A Fish Out of Water project. Tim is offering the newspaper for free via his website and you simply have to pay for postage and packaging. To get a copy, go to timmitchell.co.uk and click on the books link in the menu. The newspaper is full of great imagery, as you would expect, but also interviews and information that allows you to explore the story in greater depth. So be sure to visit Tim's website and grab a copy while you can. Links to Tim's site and the photographers, organizations and institutions mentioned during our conversation can be found in the show notes, which are available on the Documentary Photography Review website at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcast and navigate to Tim's podcast page. If you explore beyond the podcast section of the site, you'll find the work of photographers from across the globe and can enjoy the great diversity of stories that have been published to date. Thank you to all those who have shared previous episodes with their followers on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn and for the feedback you've provided. It's all greatly appreciated. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Tim Mitchell. Enjoy. kick things off. Uh, how did you come to be a photographer and what drew you to documentary photography in particular? Um, I came to be a photographer through music, uh, which was my sort of love and kind of work at the time. Um, because we were organising nightclubs amongst other things, it came on, fell on me to, because I had a visual arts background, came down to me to do the decor and back then many years ago it was uh, slide projectors so I started shooting slide I started shooting transparencies with a very specific need of um, decorating nightclubs mm -hmm. for people in various states of in intoxication and so what I found I'd done a bit of photography on foundation course a few years before that quite a few years before that so what I found was that I was teaching myself to shoot transparency which was technically quite unforgiving and I was kind of shooting what I wanted but I, I had specifically this idea of when you're projecting something using light and it's you know on straight onto a wall and you've got the frame or you lose it or you can lose the frame and you know colours and tones and shapes and patterns and gradually sort of bits of narrative started coming into that to make it more interesting and the other sort of uh, accident in all of that was that Obviously, it's quite a good way for quite a lot of people to see your work. So I started being asked to do, you know, commissions, as it were, by people who'd seen the work in, in these clubs. Right. So this, that's, how it, that's how it started. Quite an unconventional um, route. <laughs> yeah. And it was always, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of the stuff that I was projecting in nightclubs as being at all documentary other than the sort of self-evident document of a photograph. But the work that I was being commissioned for immediately, I suppose, did have a, 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 a sort of 
a, a documentary element in the sense it was quite often quite straight documentation of events or stories or places so without again subconsciously or, or um, accidentally I was you know slipping towards that and how did you kind of progress then into um, sort of more documentary photography well I suppose the first sort of kind of defined area that I was working in was travel photography so someone who knew me and knew the clubs said to me I can't find any decent pictures of any interesting pictures of Brussels and I'm doing a guidebook to Brussels you know do you want to just go there and find you know interesting stuff I was like yeah sure that'd be amazing. that'd be great I don't you know Brussels is not the most immediately obviously glamorous place to be sent but it is interesting like anywhere and it's a fun city. Yeah, exactly. So that was great. That was great to go and do that. So that kind of went on for about six years, doing travel stuff around Europe. And again, honing my skills further with transparency. This was before I was able to switch to digital. And at that point, publishers still wanted um, transparencies predominantly. And while I was doing these travel jobs, I was becoming more aware of the fact that you have a, <clears throat> when you go to somewhere else, you have a preconceived expectation of a place, uh, especially something like the travel industry, you know, reinforces that or demands that. But actually when you go somewhere and if you're actually looking, you see, you know, a completely different narrative or you see other things that aren't, are more complex than the, than the, than the stereotypes of, of how we think of another country. So as a sort of catharsis to shooting these guidebook photos, I would I'd start shooting these sort of sub-narratives or things that would subvert the stereotypical narrative. I never really managed to publish any of those, but it was a, it was a good practice for me at that point. And that's, that's kind of how it started. And I suppose because I'm a self-taught photographer, I was exploring, I've always explored the medium. So from transparency moved to, uh, straight to digital but at the same time was aware that I hadn't really tried shooting negative films, so I started doing that. And Lucy Norris, if I can explain more about, was uh, a friend. And I read her PhD, thought it was a really good story that anyone, you know, applied to everyone and anyone. So it was a really good narrative outside of academia. Yeah. Um, and she was aware of, of my interest in the kind of reality of a place as opposed to the sort of fiction of a place. So hence why we started to look to collaborate on, on the India, on the Clothing Recycled project. Mm -hmm. So that's how, that's really how it homed, I suppose. Right, okay, yeah. Um, there's probably some other strands that were going on that I've forgotten about <laughs> that were leading me down that same road. But I've always been interested in, you know, looking for either less told narratives or things that are hidden. Mm -hmm narratives that are hidden but potentially more truthful than, than the image narratives that are prevalent and maybe aren't in my mind so honest so yeah I suppose that was what I was focusing it. How have you refined your skills as a visual storyteller? Um, the hard way I think just by shooting and editing and talking with people I mean I think it's really down to talking with people um, a trusted network of friends who would look at work and evaluate it or you know, kind of rate what I'm doing. Again, because I've been outside of doing this outside of uh, education, I haven't 
there's been no sort of formal support network of photographers as such. There's been a few photographers that I've known over the years who've, who've helped me, but that's usually more about technical skill. I think with narrative, I've been more interested in uh, things like lit, you know literature or you know, even even journal you know journalistic narratives, mm -hmm. how, looking at different narratives in different contexts and how they how they can work. Yeah. But I, I suppose it's also about being quite experimental and not necessarily looking for trying to work inside a formula that's a known formula. It's just kind of, well, does this work? How well does it work? So it probably means I produce quite stop-start, patchy projects, or they take a while to come together. But that's just, yeah, that's the way I work. And how have you found trying to evolve as a photographer outside of academia? Do you feel that it's been a long, slow, and more painful process as a consequence? <laughs> yeah, maybe, but I think sometimes I didn't particularly enjoy my school years, should we say. So um, I was quite pleased. I don't really. I don't think I really woke up until I left education system almost entirely. I was sort of, was sort of half awake during my degree, <laughs> but I was rebelling then as well. And, and so I think it just suited me to not. It suited me to be out and about. I think and learning that way. I was much more, you know, interested and engaged. So I guess that's a system that suits me. I mean, I still I still think about. Oh, should I go back and do an MA? Or should I go you know, move? Look at other other forms of higher education, but I've, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for um, drawing on the different different arts, though. Like you just said, you sort of think about literature and journalism and narrative. I think there's a lot to be said for that, rather than just having studied photography. Yeah. You know, and you've come from a visual arts background, yeah. so you're just sort of bringing different strengths and points of view into it, aren't you? It's yeah. Interesting. Again, many years ago, I worked in. Uh, I was a gallery technician, so I was exposed to a, a lot of artwork over long periods of time, which was a really interesting process. I'd gone to art college. I then started working in, because I, I quite like making stuff, you know, that sort of side of the arts or crafts. So I worked as a kind of, not a carpenter as such, but a sort of set builder and that kind of thing. And that was quite interesting because that was, I was doing that at the same time as starting to hone my photography skills. So I was starting to get an understanding of both sides of a camera, yeah. how yeah. things are constructed. Obviously, when you're in theory, when you're a documentary photographer, you're not constructing the literally. You're not constructing the scene that's in front of you. Well, sometimes now sometimes, they are more. Sometimes, <laughs> yes. We're pushing into that but realm. Potentially less, but it was. In, it's, it's, I think it is interesting to have an understanding of both sides of the lens and certainly as a set builder it was interesting to understand what things were how things work behind the camera even how two dimensions is very different when it's representing as a you know three dimensions are very different represented in two yeah. <laughs> simple things like that were quite it been quite good fun yeah. yeah and how did you find the process um, and we'll talk about it I suppose again in relation to a fish out of water but how did you find the process working with Lucy an academic and kind of juggling what you both wanted visually out of the project. Mm. Ultimately, it's really good. I think any sort of relationship or any conversation, you know, should be a little bit of uh, a mix-up. It's probably not much of a conversation if you know where it's going and it goes really smoothly. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably quite interesting if it's exploratory and it develops and it's it's about this this idea of something being more than the sum of the parts, mm -hmm. so that you couldn't either one of you couldn't possibly predict what the third what your third entity is going to be as a result of the two of you working together. And, but then, of course, people come with preconceptions of what they think they're going to do or what they think they want. 
So I had preconceptions, Lucy had preconceptions, which were not wrong, but they were probably not understanding the fuller picture, which I think is a good way to start. <laughs> and then as we went along, we were able to sort of reevaluate the process and realise what was happening. So Lucy was starting to, uh, you know, early on in the project, she would be thinking, you know, why, why is he photographing, you know, off over there when the story is kind of here? And then uh, later on, she would sort of realise that there's context, contextual shots that potentially have a lot of information in them that pertains to the story. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, it's context. So those books started to become very interesting and useful for her in a, in a way that she couldn't have foreseen. Mm. And obviously for me to have access to someone who's spent you know, three or five years or more or whatever studying a, a subject with a sort of extreme focus and an academic rigour, for me to have access to that is, is brilliant. Um, although baffling at times as well, trying to understand how someone else's sort of uh, processes work when you don't have their, their, their toolkit to hand. Mm. <laughs> and so what, what do you think the benefits were of having um, access to an academic or subject matter expert? Well, I think, I think the benefits, I mean, there's a really sort of literal direct benefit in the sense that there's a, there's a key photo from the clothing recycle project, which has gone around the social science, it has gone around the anthropology, ethnography, social sciences world quite a lot. Um, which is the clothing piles sort of separated out into separate colours in a warehouse in, in northern India and it gets used a lot and that photo on one hand you know I, there's no way I could have I, by being with Lucy I was in a much better position to get at, to find and to find a photograph like that and, and one of the specific reasons I did that project was because I'd seen her attempts at photographing that very same pretty much that same sort of setup which she hadn't managed because she didn't have the technical skills to do it. So there's a benefit, a direct benefit there in the sense that there's a you know, photograph I probably couldn't have done without her and vice versa. I think, I think as a photographer it's quite odd sometimes because for me I'm not necessarily, sometimes I'm very interested in the subject at the outset, but sometimes I'm not. It's a sort of, it's an act of discovery by doing the very project itself, you know, yeah. something that you find loosely interesting or, or, you, or you think this would, this would be an interesting world to stick my nose into or something. So it can be from quite a naive start point. And you, whether you like it or not, you're going to learn a lot about the subject as you start trying to rep represent it, which I find quite interesting. So I've done that twice now, I've gone into a subject with a certain amount of ambivalence, but visual curiosity. Um, and then I've come out with quite <laughs> more understanding than I would have, <laughs> would have wanted. <laughs> You know, it's the same with the ships. I sort of resigned myself eventually to having to take it on. Or the fact that I am taking it on. Which is, you sort of think, I'm a photographer, it's not my job. But actually it is your job. <laughs> but they're, they're very interesting subjects as well. Yeah. And, and they, they kind of, they feed into a bigger picture as well. They do, yeah. And they both, they both have this link with the recycling and the kind of globalisation. I think that's what's really interesting about the recycled materials it's, it's like this journey isn't it that it's from um, India to the UK and then back to India again probably. vice versa or, yeah or within yeah. India it's actually Lucy uh, focuses quite a lot on recycling within India itself doesn't she but there's yep. also what projects done which look at the kind of the whole life cycle and its travels of clothing yep. yeah and I the mean it's the same it's like yeah yeah there's different certainly within the clothing thing there's these different strands as it were of stuff going from east to west, west to east, yeah. 
and north to south. And things you think, you think, that we think we might be far removed from, yep. those images remind you that we're not. Yeah. Well, the clothing recycled one is great because it's so literal and obvious in the sense that we all wear clothes, they're very personal to us. So I think people can really attach themselves to a photograph of a piece of Western clothing in, that's having uh, gone and going through some alien process in, in India. Whereas it's, I, it's, I think it's harder for people to connect themselves to massive ships. Whereas the irony is, is where, you know, 90%, 95% of, of what we consume comes yeah. from these ships. And they secure our power base, you know, they keep up their, they're called the workhorses of globalization and they are literally, and yet the irony is, is they become more and more invisible. So the ship out of the shipbreaking project, it probably would have been more direct or easier for people to connect to if it was a container ship. But then I think the MOD thing is quite interesting because you know we consume power if, if you like, or we sort of you know it's another sort of form of this globalized structure is the, the power bases that go with mm -hmm. it, yeah. and the idea that you know military and societal politics that go that start attaching themselves to a project like that. So can you tell us how you got into doing that project? Was that something that you were interested in and you approached an academic, or was it the other way around? Yeah, it was that way around. Yeah. I went to a talk by Nikki Gregson. Actually, it was about a wider project which Lucy was starting to become involved in. It was called uh, The Waste of the World. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I was sort of realizing that I was innately interested in, I mean, I've always known, I've always, I've always been interested in waste and recycling and those sort of efficiencies and issues. But I, I, it was only sort of around that time that I realized that it made a lot of sense to, to tie that to my photographic work if I wanted to keep it interesting for me. And as it seemed to make sense, I you was know, sort of amazed that I hadn't thought of that before. It's, it's sometimes the most obvious things that don't hit you. Mm. So I started actively you know, looking at what else was going on. So I came across Nikki, uh, went along to her talk, and again saw a photograph, very sort of um, you know, substandard photograph that she'd taken. Uh, as fine as a snap, but and just but there was enough information in her photograph for me to realise that it would make a really good time lapse, and that was a uh, you know that was like really instantaneous. As soon as I saw it, I was, that will make an amazing time lapse. I started doing time lapses at that point. I thought, you know, found them quite interesting. More in terms of that idea of making a, an invisible process visible, as opposed mm -hmm. to other things that you, you get in time lapses. So I proposed that to Nikki, which she really liked because she needed to uh, within within her project and within the wider Waste of the World project, they needed some sort of visualization because they needed to communicate as widely as possible. So, you know, they needed to commu communicate outside of the social science yeah. network. So she agreed. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty much straight away. She sort of agreed to the time-lapse idea and was able to find uh, a bit of funding within, within her project. Right. I think when people are thinking sensibly, they realize that the sort of evaluation of a documentation of evaluation of a project is kind of really important for themselves and it's worth putting a bit of money aside to do that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mistake when people think they don't need to do that or there can be shortcuts that sort of under, undercovers the project. So she's sort of, luckily for me, she sort of saw the value in that and, uh, and was in a position to act on it. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, well, while I'm doing this time lapse, I'm gonna you know, document the project in a, a photographic fashion. Oh, and again, I wasn't really sure of, of anything other than that. So I started shooting every time I was up there maintaining the time lapse. 
and just exploring. And again, it was about this sort of thing of exploring a subject and learning. You know, you approach it in a, from a position of naivety. That's your very motive to point the camera at it and learn about it and understand it in the, in the way that we do. And so it sort of went, yeah, it kind of developed from there. I think. And how did you go about carrying out the time lapse? What, what was involved? Okay, so there's, with the time lapse in Liverpool, it's on a working dock on the west coast of England with the wind and the weather and blowing all the time. The guys who were working there had worked on the previous ship that they'd broken on the site. They're Liverpudlian construction workers and they, they, they said to me, they'll nick their grandma's knickers around here. You know, you put a camera there, it's gonna go instantly. So we, we brainstormed together about how it'd be the best way to have a camera on site all the time, shooting all the time and for it not to get nicked. And, uh, one of the guys remembered there was a sort of big industrial fuse box kicking around um, and so we thought we could adapt that into a sort of protective box for the camera. So I got some two-way glass and, and they cut a hole in this thing and mounted it onto, the, you know, bolted it onto the side of the dock. Um, and so we, we built a really good setup <clears throat> but involved in that process I had to work out well, first I had to work out the best angle and for the ship that wasn't there there yet. So I had to sort of imagine what was coming in and I had to work out how big it was, how big it was going to be in the frame. Comes in on water, then the water drains out and then it's moved in the frame. And how tall is it then? And where's the best angle? So all of these weird calculations of something, how, how is it going to look when it does arrive? And then basically get placing the box there ready for it. And then running power to it as well. Uh, and trying to make sure that the power is never going to get switched off, which never ever, I've never ever succeeded. The power has always somehow managed to get switched off or severed or cut on all the other time lapses I've done. It's really difficult to guarantee that power. So the next one I want to do, I want to make it solar powered. Though that will probably fail as well. <laughs> well, uh, in this country. <laughs> exactly. Although solar works better in a cooler climate. Solar panels right. in hot countries give out, have, have a lot of heat loss, latency. Right. Yeah. So they're more efficient in the northern hemisphere. All right. So yeah, that was the kind of technicalities of setting up the time lapse. It's just making sure that this thing's not going to move for yeah. however long. It was supposed to be six months, but then it took the best part of two years. Right. And kind of worked out roughly how long I thought it should be shooting for, and maybe upped the frame rate at certain times a little bit. I, I actually only upped the frame rate frame rate at the very beginning and the very end, so you see the, the ship coming in. Um, other than that, it was a kind of a frame every hour for two years, right. and then uh, and then a subjective edit. So I could still do a more objective edit where I, I leave in the quiet patches, because that would be quite interesting in itself. To, I mean, that's that would be the sort of anthropological take on it, would be to edit the time lapse so that you've got your dead time in there because that's of interest in it. Yeah. the economics of a project like that. But for me I wanted to make something that was just going to capture the imagination so it was more of a subjective edit initially. I believe Lucy who you worked with on clothing recycled was an anthropologist. What, uh, what field were the academics that you worked on for Fish Out of Water? Um, Nikki, Nikki Grigson was, the, was primarily the academic that I worked with so essentially she commissioned me if you like and then we collaborated it's never entirely sort of black and white or clear as to how boundaries are going to form and interestingly in the someone in that in that recent issue of Aperture magazine which is all about documentary expanded someone in there said there's 
probably uh, more often than not there's collaboration in photography but most of the time it's uh, you know not talked about <laughs> um, which I thought was good, an interesting point um, so Nikki is a she's crossed a few boundaries within social sciences I think she's worked ethnographically uh, potentially as an anthropologist she's a she would probably call herself a ge geographer um, but she's really got quite a broad practice so she sort of sees across the boundaries and then Mike Krang is the other uh, social scientist who I've worked with more loosely on the project uh, as, it, as it developed and he is a cultural geographer I suppose human geographer to be honest I find it quite difficult pinning down the different social science disciplines probably because they're quite hard to pin down and they, they're quite permeable borders, I guess, maybe. So that's those two's background. And at the time, they were, I think they were both based at Sheffield. I know Nikki was based at Sheffield when the project started. And it was um, this, when I say the project, there was this Waste of the World project of which Lucy's research started to come under that umbrella and the shipbreaking was in, under that same wider project and Sheffield was one of the partner universities involved in that. And that was, uh, and that was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, mostly, I think. Both Nikki and Mike Krang are now ba based up in Durham, which worked quite well for me, given that it turned out I was able to show the work up in Sunderland. So there was Durham being just around the corner. It was, it was good to have them kind of back on board again for the exhibition. Yeah. And so what was it that they, the, um, they wanted to work with you on? So what, why did they bring a photographer into it? What was their aim? What story were they trying to tell? What story were you trying to tell? Nikki, I'd approached Nikki about the time lapse. She needed yeah. that. She realised she needed that as a, for her dissemination. Yeah. Then I was shooting in different ways. I was shooting a much more personal experience of being on and around the ship while it was being broken and meeting and getting to know and photographing the guys who were doing the work and I wanted it I was kind of drawing trying to draw a bit more from fine art aesthetic practice if you like where you're interested in abstractions and colors and textures and emotions and feelings and in the portraits I was trying to just work with something that was quite immediate and quite direct so I didn't want anything that was too illustrative or explicit but at the same time that was all shot on medium format film and then what I would do is I'd put that camera away and I'd get out a digital SLR and just shoot much more directly and illustratively as to the process that was happening and the idea I think with Nikki was that those illustrative photos would sort of be useful for her as again as you know illustrating her talks you know illustrating the subject that she was studying and they were I think she's used them in talks and we've we used them in the everything must go exhibition but towards and I didn't tell her about these these other kind of bigger slower pictures that I was taking because I didn't I wanted to take I wanted to have ownership of it and I didn't at the time and I didn't really understand quite what they were or how they were going to work they were a bit of you know an impulse that didn't have a clear uh, outcome and it wasn't until I was the whole thing was done and dusted and I was editing these medium format pictures and trying to get some sort of loose narrative out of it that Nikki started talking to me about 
we were brainstorming about the Everything Must Go exhibition is she said if only we could convey the feeling of being you know in that space or in this in that ship while it's being broken or you know this the, the sort of the smell and the dirt and the toughness of the environment and uh, I said well you know I was thinking well, that sounds like the other stuff that I've been shooting <laughs> so I told her about those images and we ended up using some of them in the show and it was it was interesting because I didn't predict that they would be again they were sort of contextual and they proved to be very useful to her so we're still working together in that sense and uh, she's now turned around and talked about the photography work and, and we're both quite interested in the process of collaboration and we might try and do something about that based on that so I think the uses change and develop I suppose as the project goes along so I think initially it was just like yeah we've got a photographer who's going to illustrate our findings yeah and that was how it started but yeah. it, invariably it becomes a bit more entwined I think if you, if, I think if you are bringing something to it as a photographer then, then things become more entwined yeah. so you feel that Photographers do bring more than simply tools to disseminate the information into the public domain and out of yeah. academia. Yeah, I mean the, the photographs are they're sort of information rich and they're very slippery, so they can slip between different interpretations or be used in different contexts or in different ways, depending on how they're presented or how they're edited or what is said next to them. And I think if people are honest about that, it's kind of makes the most of those the possibilities of these images. So I think even when things are shot intentionally for one purpose, or intentionally just to be illustrative, I think if, if they're looked at in an interesting way, you know, suddenly their purpose can yeah, change. And, or coupled with certain information. Yeah, then, then yeah. suddenly the context changes. Absolutely. I think, I used to find that a really weird concept and found, or thought that things had to be very categorised and but actually now I'm like, no, if it's a photograph, it's, it's kind of open game as to where, it's, where it can go. <laughs> <I don't> mean, <laughs> what about, what about the, the information that's actually captured within the image itself? Has that ever fed into the, the research? Has that ever kind of exposed the academics to things that they weren't aware of and therefore fed into their research and, and helped it to to change or evolve in any way? Um, I'm just thinking, because that's quite, there's probably literal examples of that. I think there is visual information in, literally visual information in the, in the images that was sometimes news. But then sometimes it's more, I think what's more useful potentially within the case of these two projects has been the contextual, contextualization. So the fact that the, maybe <clears throat> the way I would photograph would be slightly oblique slightly off to the side or something it wouldn't necessarily be looking straight at the subject and then so what would be news for, for my collaborator would be that this contextual information would start to inform their understanding of the subject that sat within that context because maybe at the time they had only been focusing on the pile of clothes or whatever and, and I'm instead looking at the temple that's been built as a result of the market that trades the clothing and then temple starts to feed in to their work more as a result yeah. so I'm sure there must be examples of something literal where it's like oh look there's this X this particular type of weld has been used or I mean when I've when I showed the work in when I showed the shipbreaking project in Sunderland I saw I suddenly had all these you know this uh, whole generations of guys who did apprenticeships on the docks and know all about 
what goes into building a ship, even if there's no shipbuilding anymore there, they still know it. There was guys who I was meeting who were looking at the photographs and just mining information out of them. I didn't know anything about, you know, they were telling me about, you know, there's a little bit, a little noggin welded onto a panel somewhere in the photo. They're going, well, that was, that should have come off the ship as soon as it had been finished being built because it was only good for one hang and you can't risk attaching anything to that ever again and look it's still there when the ship's been broken 40 <laughs> years later or, or other you know bits of information so I quite like that I quite like the idea of having information rich yeah. material yeah. Mark, Mark Neville at the, did a show at the photographer's gallery curated by David Campany and I think stylistically Mark Neville's quite odd I think people would sort of look at his documentary work and find it essentially quite an odd style but his argument was that he wants as much information in there as possible mm -hmm. so that informed how he shot the work I quite like that. In terms of doing the, the portraits um, how did you kind of gain access and trust with the people that you photographed mm. and also what were the emotions that were kind of around the docks? And because I was there all the time all the time I was there once a month but that's, it was quite a lot. It was, you know, I had quite a lot. It feels like I had quite a lot of contact time. I had time to get to know the blokes. There was nothing rushed in any way. So I was able to get to know them before I started photographing. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't under any pressure to just steam in and start photographing them. And, and then I'd just re reassure them throughout the process. So with the photographs, I, I'm sort of trying to remember now what my motive was, but I think I just wanted something that was quite straight. I think with portraits, I was quite interested in the idea that what can you get from someone who just looks at you, as opposed to sort of, I, I didn't want to really construct anything or get them to pose, or I didn't want to create a narrative that wasn't necessarily there. You know, you can read, you can overly read into a, into an expression. And they're, they're also just tired, you know, the guys are really tired, it's hard work. And although we got on really well, you know, they, were, they weren't in a position to sort of muck about too much with me. So really, my only technique on that occasion was just to be using this very slow, medium format film camera that they were kind of intrigued by but didn't really understand. And, and then would, I would just say, just, you know, obviously just stop there. And sometimes, I think invariably, they would just look at the camera. I think if I say less, if you, don't, if you, if you give less prompts, people just do whatever's natural and if they feel comfortable with you they'll do whatever's innate about them at that time so they're not feeling like they were having to perform because they're fairly relaxed the irony is the photos I think are quite confrontational when you see them quite big they're really I think there's a real there's quite a hard stare mm. um, and I think some people have interpreted that as the hard stares at me as the photographer but I think that maybe there was a certain amount of like oh god you know this guy is just, you know, an idiot. What's he doing, you know, hanging out here? This is hard work. I think they were actually fine with me. So I think the, I think yeah, this sort of straight stare that you get is, and you can read into it a sense of the straight stare is an accusation about what you're going to do about this waste. And maybe that, maybe that's in there. Maybe that's not. I think it's just a really comfortable ambivalence on their part. <laughs> But I just was quite fascinated to, to do that. Where, you know, what's the least you can get out of a, a subject, and it, but it be them. And I think when you blow them up, they work. I think in small JPEGs, those portraits are quite difficult to get into. Right. That's yeah. my personal feeling. Having now seen the pictures big, 
I'm going to put one of the portraits in a labyrinth photographic. The hand printers in East London are doing a show of all the work they print, all the work, the best work that they print. So I'm going to put one of the portraits in that group show because I want people to see these portraits big. You know, yeah. big. So yeah. this will be a ch this will be the first chance outside of Sunderland to see uh, to see the portraits big, which I'm excited by. Yeah, yeah. And what? Um, these people working on breaking down the ship, what were their sort of feelings about it? Um, Ambivalence. Mm. Um, for them it's a job, they're a demolition crew. Uh, you know, it's tough work, you know, they're labourers. Really great blokes, really interesting guys, but doing quite a tough, tiring job. So I, I, I think they weren't really that interested. One of them was ex-military, so he had a bit more interest in the MOD background of the ship. But the rest of them were like, you know, it's a job. This is just a job. Yeah. And what, but what what you do get is you, you know, there's lots of other people who are, who are emotional or attach emotions to the ship because they've got personal connection to it, or when it was alive as such, or um, met and know the captain of the ship a bit, and he, you know, found that whole process of seeing it destroyed really emotional. He found it very difficult to detach himself from it. And people who built ships find it quite distressing, I think, seeing this, this breaking process. And that, you know, I got that definitely up in Sunderland. I was a bit worried about showing it in Sunderland in terms of how people would find, you know, an outsider sort of showing sort of something that's quite personal to a city um, or to a region. So yeah, a lot of people do attach emotion to it, but not, not the guys who broke the ship on that occasion. I would have liked to have interviewed them. I've still got all their contact details and I'm still in touch with them. One of the ways I was able to kind of guarantee the security of the time-lapse was to say to them, well, you, you know, you get, you, you can have a copy of the time-lapse when it's done. <laughs> Just look after the camera to make sure no one else nicks it. Yeah. <laughs> and I might still try and interview them, I think, maybe. I think you have to like, let a project go at some point, but it's also quite nice just to keep slapping layers on it. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, that's the thing. You, you've, uh, I recently read that you put a call out in a local newspaper, at least the web-based version, for people who were in the shipbuilding industry in the 1960s. Yeah. So, so you are wanting to explore kind of other layers to the story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it is, it's, the ship was built in Newcastle. The project was shown just down the road in Sunderland. And it sort of dawned on me up there that you know, I should put a call out to see if I could find anyone who actually did work on the construction of it. So it's feasible that there's someone still alive. They'd probably be in their mid-50s at the youngest. So hopefully the, you know, there'd be someone around who had worked on it. I haven't found anyone yet, but there's, other, there's a few leads I've got. I just think it would be quite interesting to have a conversation with someone who built the ship. Yeah. I think it's just a sort of, it's like a, it's like a social history based around a, a ship. You know, it's, I started off thinking I was just documenting the breaking of a, you know, a ship and then people are always really interesting so that starts coming in. And I'm more and more interested in oral history and social history so that starts coming in and then, you, then it becomes more than just that location where the ship is broken or the breaking of the ship, it then becomes about the life of that vessel or the birth of that vessel you know so I suppose feasibility will at some point you know cap how, how far and wide you can go but I, I like with good documentary that you can build up a big story that's not uh, that doesn't have a sort of uh, journalistic severity to it you know I was amazed to discover uh, the sort of oral history archives that are being made and how loose and open they are and how 
you know, they're like a, a good oral history is like a photograph in the sense there's so much, so, you know, so many different kinds of information embedded in the oral history that anything could, you know, many different uses or purposes could be pulled out of those oral histories. So I think to tandem that with, with photographs works really well. Thinking about how wide it can go, because because this project is part of a, a larger narrative which is about the travelling of ships, isn't it? And ships as the... Yeah. Globalisation workhorse, workhorse yes. of globalisation. Workhorses of globalisation, yeah. yeah and, moving. And also, in as well as that, there's also this element that actually lots of the ships don't get broken up in Europe. No. So had you thought about situating the images within the, a global context visually, or, um, or you just wanted to I focus? I have done. Yeah. Yeah. The everything must go event or exhibition, which was. Uh, a sort of dissemination of the waste of the world project's findings. We made a room about the shipbreaking, so there was my work, which was specifically about sh a shipbreaking attempt in the UK. Yeah. That was set within a. I contacted another photographer who'd photographed Chittagong in Bangladesh and Alang in uh, India and places like this, where where the vast majority of ships are broken up. The photographer is. I Hibbert. can find his name and supply it. Did Edward Beninsky yeah. do work on um, <coughs> the ship? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's various people who've done it. It wasn't him, though. It wasn't. No, it wasn't that's him, what, no. that, those are the images that I'm thinking of. Mm. Yeah, the ships being broken up in. I believe that's India or Bangladesh. That's in Bangladesh. Bangladesh. I'm pretty sure there's a Jun Chittagong. Yeah. 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 <coughs> no, it was someone else who generally he was very brilliant and generous and really helpful. Um, so we were able to build a room that was about this essentially about this effort of shipbreaking in the UK and how difficult it is, set in a context, in a global context. So all the anthropological, all the social science understanding of the global context, economics, politics, and imagery of how ships are broken elsewhere in, in bad conditions. Mm. So it was put in a global context for that. For me, I would like this project to sit within that context. I can't, I'm, I'm not in a position really to, to do that myself in terms of going and photographing. No, yeah. Maybe, I mean, never say never, but I'm, I have no plans to. I'm more interested in the local yeah. story and, and the fact that I think when people see pictures of ships being broken in Bangladesh, it's quite hard. It's possibly even harder for them to make a connection, personal connection to that, than it would be for them to see local characters breaking something in a place they know about in their own country yeah. and realizing that it's quite difficult and messy here. And then if you can somehow then tie that to the wider context. Because I think, you know, again, it suffers from that, the exotic. Look, they break ships in Bangladesh, you know, that's terrible. Anyway, where was I? You know, there's no sort of joining of the dots. Yeah. Uh, which is so weird. It's, it's, it's so weird that such big vessels, you know, we, the biggest moving objects we make are, are just invisible. You know, it's so easy to sort of go and trash them illegally. So it's probably easier to do that than it is to throw litter away here. It's crazy. But um, then the EU these measures um, that they introduced yeah. in December at a European level, do you think that they will have any sort of impact in terms of supporting the, the breaking of the ships at their source or, or at least within the boundaries of the EU rather than being shipped off to, to Bangladesh and the likes where there are no health and safety regulations or, or no real kind of legislation to protect the workers' rights? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No, they were concise. It's not going to work. It's no. not going to work. The legislation that changed in December last year doesn't address the main problem, which is the flags of convenience. Which uh, flags of convenience are where you you change the sort of ownership of a ship 
to a country that can't or won't enforce global legislation that says don't dump a toxic ship on a beach and cut it up. And it's just really, really easy to, to use these flags of, of convenience, basically to get a ship out of EU ownership and go and beach it. And there's no sort of, there's no comeback on that. There should be, and there should be a decision made on it, which was supposed to happen last year, but it kind of got kicked in the rough because it's too difficult a decision for EU Parliament to make. So they, they kick it off into the rough until next year. And what would be great is if people are aware enough of it, of this decision that has to be made in order to sort of put a public pressure on the EU Parliament to do the right thing. It then gets complicated as to what the right thing is. There's a, a really good organisation called Shipbreaking Platform who are an NGO put together out of an amalgam of all the other concerned NGOs. They lobby for decent legislation and ensuring of the global laws on shipbreaking, uh, which aren't, aren't, isn't happening yet. Um, on their website, they've got the whole story plotted out you know, really well, and, and, and they're, they're lobbying the right direction. The problem is that the economic, global economics mean doesn't necessarily make sense to break a ship say in the EU if there's no demand for the materials in the EU so this makes it more problematic so rather than sort of saying okay you shouldn't break things in Bangladesh and rightly so you shouldn't break them the way they are being broken the demand for recycled steel is there uh, so it's a bit ridiculous to break a ship here and then ship all the steel from that ship across the planet to sell it and it makes it a lot more expensive to do that. But it's like, well, how are you going to organise the shipping industry or force the shipping industry to set up some sort of decent facility where the demand is needed? You know, they're not, they're not that sensible. They're not that corralable at the moment. So they need to be enforced to, to do that. The costs have to be kind of built into the industry properly. Yeah. I mean, this is a classic thing with waste and recycling is there's not a proper understanding of the true cost of things or the true cost of waste or the true loss of value. You know, we think, oh, it's great, something's being recycled. You know, no, it's, it's terrible. You've just, you've just destroyed all the value and um, created a whole load of other byproducts. You know, so that it's, a, it's a really problematic issue, but what would be great is to get people more interested in time for this vote next year. So I'm hoping to show the work down here and try and get a debate going in, this, in London uh, before that happens, just to sort of try and build up some more attention to it. And I think an image, if you start off with a compelling time-lapse of a, sh uh, a company attempting to break a ship in the UK, but having no support from government and it being a very difficult thing to do, you know, if you set that in the global context and show it here and get people interested in it, and then say to policymakers, you, you know, you better come and join in and talk about this, then you've hopefully sort of made it a bit more of a public issue. Um, that would be my aim. Again, none of this I would have intended when I first thought about doing a time-lapse of shit. But you just become, you know, what are you going to do? You just like, take ownership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then because what you're producing has that power to influence and to create positive change. Yeah. And, and therefore, for me, I, I feel like documentary photographers, there, there, there should be a sense of obligation for what is produced to feed into something bigger than just that body of work yeah. um, because what you're producing just kind of begins and ends with 
the means by which you exhibit it, whether it's yeah. in a gallery or, or yeah. uh, in a publication, whatever. But but I feel that there should be a moral obligation to pick up that body of work and to integrate it, to feed it into a wider campaign to try and create change around that that story and the things that were the issues that were raised yeah. in that body of work. Um, so I think it's great that, that you're doing that. Uh, even though it wasn't planned at the beginning, but you know, that is, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's Yeah, happening. I mean, it's always been planned by the social scientists, and, right. and now they have someone working with them as a visual communicator and is maybe has a bit more of a, you know, a different set of tools yeah. towards... Yeah, we'll engage towards a the, wide audience. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 you know, me with my kind of mixed background, I'm quite used to trying to mix it up a bit, mix up the mediums a bit and mix up the, you know, make the message a bit more. I think people can take on a bit more of a complex message if you... Can find a way of making it compelling. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, traditionally, it's not been seen as very glamorous, and it doesn't, you know, and doesn't fit the box of the idea of documentary photographers actually doing something. You know, traditionally, it's like, oh no, you're, you know, it's a bit more. It's this glamorous representation of something, and and then that the the, the idea that you're somehow um, keeping objective distance, as if you're somehow you know, as if there's an objective truth. And mm. actually, there's all, you know, there's, a lot, there's, a lot, there's so much documentary practice that is in, you know where the people are really embedded in trying to get policy change, or tr you know, trying to get social change, and are really active beyond the act of taking a photograph. But it's I think it's been quite well hidden up until recently. That idea, it just makes it a bit, yeah, it makes it a bit more interesting. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Documentary photography's roots were born in the desire to to create change, to influence people. Mm. There's a, a really good book, and I wish I could recall its title and its author, but it's on photographic activism, yeah. and it goes into details of yeah, just how documentary photography was really born in that with that agenda, with yeah. with that desire to kind of influence people. Um, because it was seen that imagery could achieve that, um, I think it. I think it was about trying to preserve uh, old buildings, but unfortunately, the the photographers who were commissioned to do it took such beautiful imagery that nobody actually felt that there was a need to preserve them. <laughs> so it was kind of kind the of problem we have is the sort of uh, the fetish. You, you, the picture gets fetished, mm -hmm. and the the subject gets forgotten. Yeah. You know, quite often I find it frustrating when I, I you know. I do quite a lot of education work with community groups or secondary, primary schools, whatever. Um, not teaching them photography per se, but working on other subjects using photography or working creatively using photography. And mm -hmm. What's quite frustrating is when you come with a subject like shipbreaking uh, and then they're going, so how do you, you, know, you take a good photo? And you're thinking, don't worry about that, you know, let's talk about the subject. Yeah. Oh, no, but we want to talk about the photos, you know. <laughs> no, no, you just get through the photos to the subject, that's much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think the thing with a lot of documentary photography, although I agree with you, it definitely has its roots in trying to push for change. I think quite a lot of it's been focused on perhaps more tangible social elements, war, real obvious social inequalities, whereas these ships are an example where it's a more abstract, isn't it? So yeah, it's more invisible, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I think documentary photography can play a really important role now. And that projects like this need to be like pushed much more, um, more visibly. And you know, in the, and sort of what get alongside images of kind of war and famine and yep. all these images we're very used to. You know? yep. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think it's good to kind of document these like sort of more nuanced inequalities. Yeah. yeah well, we've got a. Um, 
you know, part of this sort of buzzword globalization, you know, when you actually pick it apart, you've got this um, increasingly invisible network. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, you know, a global village or the world shrinking. It's like, well, so many processes are just invisible to us, whereas they didn't used to be. So, you know, there's potentially a real role for something like photography to make that visible again. Yeah. Yep. Which is quite difficult in some contexts. I find that work interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think probably because it's a bit more oblique, potentially, also. And I, I do like the idea of, although I can have an opinion on something, I do like the idea of producing a work that has a broad narrative and that it, the narrative will potentially contain positive and negative. You know, that's what a social scientist will do. They won't pitch one, particularly necessarily one angle or one narrative. They'll try and unpack all of the narratives. And that, yeah, it takes, you can't spit it out in a five minute news bulletin, but you, if you spend, if you can invite someone into to, to the subject a bit, then it doesn't take that long for people to understand that narratives are quite, can be quite complex. And, you know, you can't, you know, again, solve a problem by sim oversimplifying a narrative. <laughs> Going back to a fish out of water, you received some funding for that from the Arts Council and, yep. and others. Yep. Was that uh, your labor that went into that or was that something that was set up uh, by uh, the academics that you were working with? Did they already have the funding for the project as a whole? The first stage, which was this time-lapse commission, if you like, yep. was quite simple in the sense that it came from the anthropology project, the social the geography project, this Waste of the World project, this Waste project which was ESRC funded, so I was able to get paid a day rate to go and maintain the time-lapse. Right. So there was a, you know, a small amount, it wasn't great pay or anything, but it was enough to justify me being able to go up there, mm -hmm. go from London to Liverpool once a month, maintain the time-lapse. The setup was pretty much covered, um, the costs, the material costs. A time lapse can be quite cheap to run. You know, you can run for two years, but it's not like it's a, yeah, it's not like you need to get paid for two years. You just need to get paid for, you know, 20 days work or something, if you can, and uh, materials. So that covered the time lapse, and then I just piggybacked my photography work on the back of it. That was all self-funded in terms of material, so film stock, etc. What then happened is once I, you know, edited that work and started to try and get it under people's noses. Uh, there's, a curator, there's a curator in Sunderland who I've been in dialogue with for the best part of a decade. And we've, you know, we've had an interesting conversation over the years and when he saw this work, he thought that it would chime with Sunderland and he had an opportunity to show it. Uh, so that gave me then a strong argument to put an Arts Council uh, application in to get them, you know, to get the show printed up as such. Yeah, so that's kind of how it works. It was essentially, you know, uh, research council money to start the project and then arts council money to s disseminate the project for me uh, and to put, you know, to put a more artistic spin on it, if you like, or take it in that context. So on one hand, a photograph can be used in an anthropological journal or, you know, or the company gets to use the time lapse of what they, the work they did but then I can put the whole thing together as a creative bundle, if you like. Um, and the Arts Council can see the value in that because it's reaching a wider audience, yeah. furthering 
decent artistic practice and, and reaching a wider audience in a place like Sunderland which has been kicked in the teeth 30 years ago and still recovering. What was that process like and, and is there any advice you can give others who might be seeking to fund their personal projects? Um, funding personal projects, I mean I think the personal projects can be like entirely personal, you know, in all senses of the word. You know, really they ne aren't necessarily anyone else's business even until the work is shown. And in that context, you're not really going to be able to or want to get funding maybe on that extreme end of it yeah. in, until maybe you show the work and if it has, there's a show of demand for the work, if it's perceived as of value and that, you know, I don't know, curators or publishers or whoever like it and want to show it, then there's an argument that you could then go to the, someone like the Arts Council or to funders saying, look, I've got uh, uh, there's, there's a show of demand for this work but I don't have the money to present it properly that's a really compelling argument for funding I, I think with other personal projects if there's a I think if there's a context or a use if you like for them so where you know thinking about what context it sits in you know you could rather than seeking out some sort of <clears throat> photography funding as such you know it's more, probably more interesting to go and look for funding in other sectors that share an interest in whatever your subject matter is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unless your project is also about photography, you know, if it's, then you're stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I, I, I think it's really interesting to look out, you know, look out as far as you can for who, who would be interested in funding it. Because that, that also, that process of looking beyond the boundaries of the art form for the funding means that your, your work's going to get greater exposure yeah. because you're tapping into um, external sources of funding like, say, the Wellcome Trust or um, yeah. other, others that, that aren't arts-based, then it kind of guarantees that a, a wider audience yeah. is going to see your work and, and those that are are actually interested in that kind of subject matter anyway and to get the support of that organization yeah. that is providing the yeah. so yeah, I, think, I think a lot of value in, in looking beyond the arts yeah. for that funding. Yeah, it's a form of applying your work and validating it elsewhere, yeah. you know, rather than photography for photography's sake, it's photography for humanitarian sake yeah. and you would, if it's good work you're proposing, then you would rightly ask for help from somewhere and then and then ironically the art, someone like the Arts Council or an arts funder is going to like the fact that there's a, a match funding yeah. proposition and a show of interest outside of the arts you know it's for them then they can put their stamp on you as well yeah. and say well we validate this yeah yeah, yeah it's also also that external funding means that it's as you were saying earlier on it's it's the story, you know, think about the narrative first, the story and what you're trying to say before you think about the picture. So it's putting that forward, that, that being the kind of uh, primary element of your work is the story. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, for me, content is king, really. I think form, the form follows the function. I think you can still do a good job of the form. But I think there's nothing worse than contentless 
for if that's not doesn't sound too cryptic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think it's you know I, I I don't know. I think we're photographers if we're you know we're interested in things other than photography. Um, I, 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 I kind of don't see the point in just obsessing about an art form on its own. You know, its own. And that's the beauty of photography is that it can, you know, it's a lens onto the world. Yeah. And that's what makes it so rich. So is you know so is poetry. So is dance. So is all other art forms. I think it's a mistake to sort of uh, fetishize a photo for its own sake. Personally. Yeah. Going back to the working with academics, is that something? you would recommend and, and how how would you recommend going about making it happen? It's something that I feel has a mm. huge amount of potential um, because it gives the photographer access to subject matter expert and, yeah. and therefore into an area that they would, it would take them ages to get access to, to build up the trust and be seen as an authority figure and get access to those, those locations. So there's lots of value there for the photographer and then obviously as we've discussed it feeds into the work. Uh, the academic work and also ensures that it gets out of academia and into the public domain. But you were saying that you actually made contact with the person, haven't been in a talk. Have you any other, any kind of recommendations, any advice in terms of how to initiate those processes and how to maintain it and, and ensure that it's a positive relationship, managing that relationship and the outcome? Um, I, I think it's okay. I mean, firstly, it's just a case of getting stuff getting like stuff under people's noses, getting out there in people's faces, literally like, you know, if you like what someone's doing, you're interested in their subject, just email them, tell them, say, hit them with an idea, you know, or cause chances are, you know, someone, someone who's a really good, hardcore academic into the subject they're studying, it's a high, a high chance they're not a great visual communicator potentially and that they would love someone to sort of say I would like to team up with you I mean I, I also I think there's a now and there's a probably more than a trend I don't know what I'd call it a trope in, in academia where you have to have impact as part of the funding of yeah. academia yeah. And, and this notion of impact is about is a, rightfully so is about reaching wider audiences and not just working within a a perceived, academy. a perceived, you know, closed yeah. academy. So I think probably more than ever, uh, academics of particular subjects are, uh, are probably would be looking, would be, you know, would love someone who's got a decent visual idea of how, how to approach their subject. Would love to hear from them, I would have thought. Um, and then it's just that classic thing of, yeah, if you get on, that'll be the best way to work together, you know, if, if, if you see eye to eye or you can share a sense of humour or those sort of human traits that help working together you know and I think those, those I also sort of believe in just sort of throwing out as much as you can mm -hmm. being quite almost quite flippant with your initiating ideas just to see what sticks you know some stuff sticks some doesn't and then it's also just then it's just about maintaining a relationship which is like maintaining any other relationship. <laughs> it's a pleasure and a, a pain in terms. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Is this something you're going to carry on doing, um, collaborating with academics or, or non-academics, but kind of always working in collaboration? As you I would like to, because yeah. I missed it when I, you know, I used to make music. Years and years ago, I used to make music, and that was just a wonderful process, because it, and for me, it was a social process. It was about 
this kind of weird communication that goes on between musicians is a really magical thing and you're a team. It's just great. It's a really good way of working. And I miss I personally missed that when I started doing photography and I found it although I found it a wonderfully metaphysical, personal process or journey. I also found it quite potentially also quite isolating and you can go off in your own little world potentially and and then you're sort of it's like well where are you in the real world in that situation? It's still good to do that, but I think it's also interesting to work together, you know, as, as teams with different skills. And I, you know, sometimes I think about should I go off and do anthropology or something, but I'm, I'm not convinced that it would really be the best plan. It might be better just to keep teaming, if I can, to keep teaming up with people like that. So there's a few sort of, you know, throwing ideas around to see what sticks at the moment. Yeah. I think it's interesting because, um, speaking from experience, because academic work is also very isolating. Right. So, well, I mean, obviously you can, it depends on your department or what kind of work you're doing, but a lot of the time you are focused on your own project, really deep in it. Mm. Um, so, it's interesting to bring two people then, the documentary photographer who can also feel quite isolated, and the academic. It's good for both parties, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. One thing would be to think about working with PhD students, perhaps, because they're particularly, I think, they find the process particularly isolating. Um, whether they have funding to work with photographers, but I think that could be something to work with emerging academics as well. I mean, yeah, I would... It's a really interesting notion, you know. It would almost be worth proposing that that is a, a, a set-up, an established way of working, and that... You know, Arts and Humanities Research yeah. Council or the, any of the research councils that they maybe should look to set up those sort of collaborations from from their angle, you know, rather than it being uh, you know us little guys at the bottom trying to argue the case. It's like well, there's obviously evidence that it's a good idea. So maybe maybe there should be maybe there are or there should be some you know funding. I know there are now starting to be collaborative funding streams that are kicking around. Right. There's one for uh, that uh, the AHRC are doing with the science community, where they want a collaboration between science and the arts. And there's a funding stream there for that. Um, and there's a program called Excite, I think, under that banner. I used to sort of avoid you know, the whole idea of looking for funding, but I think we're now in a situation where editorial, the idea of sort of some sort of decent editorial funding is almost, is, is in a lot of flux, should we say. So I think if you're wanting to do something really in depth, you're not really going to get patroned by a magazine to do that. And, uh, and also maybe that's not the best platform anymore either. So, you know, I think, I think to find other funding sources is a, is a better idea. Yeah. Can I just ask, one last question, just to wrap up the podcast. Sure. Uh, there are many more questions that I'd like to <laughs> yeah. ask, but uh, we've got to stop at some point. So, are there any documentary photographers that you can recommend uh, that are also working on stories local to them? There can be anybody anywhere in the world, mm, so it doesn't mm. have to be in the UK specifically, but um, working on projects local to them. It changes like week by week for me, you know. I find someone new, I remember someone old. But the one guy I would say is Paul Alexander Knox. He's, I mentioned him because I was sort of had contact and involvement with him while I was up in Sunderland. He's a really good local social documentary 
photographer. Um, he's worked on a real interesting breadth of projects, kind of locally and globally, but his local ones are really interesting. And he's worked across a few different formats as well, so he's approached a few different local projects in, in different ways. Um, I think he's great. He's a really good, really good local documentary photographer. There's a, I don't know if he'd be called documentary photographer. There's a guy I was quite intrigued by who I hadn't heard of until very recently called Daniel She or Daniel Shea. Surname spelled S-H-E-A. Um, he's an American photographer. He's interesting. He's got a kind of a fine art practice where it involves sculpture mm -hmm. and photographs. And then he's a very good documentary photographer and he works in editorial as well. And it's in that classic American open-mindedness where he can operate validly in all three. Um, I think he's, yeah, he's really fascinating just for that breadth to his work. Again, that's a breadth of approach. So those two jump to mind straight away. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been really interesting. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Documentary Photography Review podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Tim Mitchell. You can find Tim's The Fish Out of Water project and his other work at his website at timmitchell.co.uk. As always, links to photographers, exhibitions, organisations and so on mentioned in this podcast are listed in the show notes, available at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts, and then navigate to Tim's interview. If you are a documentary photographer and would like to have your work featured on the Documentary Photography Review website, then get in touch via email on chris at documentaryphotoreview.com or you can submit your work via the website. Unlike this podcast series, which focuses on stories local to the photographer, the website showcases any project from anywhere in the world as long as the images are of a documentary nature. For more information, go to documentaryphotoreview.com. If you've enjoyed this interview or any others in the series so far, then please do rate the podcast or leave a comment or review via iTunes. This will help us be seen and heard by more people, spreading the word about this series, but also about the important work of the photographers we interview. You can also subscribe via iTunes to make sure you don't miss out on these fortnightly podcasts. And the next one will be released on the 15th of April. Thanks again for listening and take care. <laughs>